So what's the big problem with wealth creation? How do people like us, who didn't inherit a boatload of money, who are investing and building wealth from our own blood, sweat and tears, how do we invest in a way that gives us remarkable results and become financially free before retirement age? I don't know about you, but I am sick of hearing from wealth gurus and experts who don't walk their own talk and prescribe strategies that are a one-size-fits-all approach. For self-made people like you and me, I'm here to tell you that you don't need to be superhuman or already wealthy to reach financial freedom earlier than 65. Hi guys, just a quick heads up that I'm changing up the format of the podcast for a few episodes. I've been getting so much inquiry from young adults who are deeply frustrated with a lot of aspects of wealth building in today's environment. So I have invited my good friend, Ken Huang, who is a millennial, to come join me to have some candid conversation about what's happening today and really kind of share lessons and uh, experiences that I've had along the way that I hope will be helpful to you. Please enjoy these wide ranging and uncensored conversations. All right, let's get into it. So today's episode is a topic that, um, you know, we were talking about just actually off camera about how can people know that they are actually on track to be wealthy. Now, um, you've given me four KPIs basically that you use when you consult for your clients and also give advice to people and I'm going to name them. So there's lifestyle burn rate, there's consistent predictable savings patterns, and then there's net worth and then there's working capital. So we'll go through each one. But fundamentally, to say to be on track to be wealthy, can we have a bit of, I guess, guidance on definitions around wealthy, right? Because it's a how long's a piece of string situation. Um, how would you define wealthy? So look, Wealthy for me is very different to um, earning money, which is a closer reference to being rich. So if you earn a lot of money, people say you're rich, but wealth is about the accumulation of assets that you could actually rely on or depend on if your income stopped. And so that's why, in my opinion, there's a lot of very rich people out there who have virtually nothing behind them. And if that income stream was interrupted or stopped um, or there was some black swan event or there was a crisis, they'd be going back to zero. So that's kind of the, the definition that I have in my mind anyway. So obviously people are working towards that, the ability to create, you know, some form of wealth or annuity, as you sometimes call it, which is, you know, money that is coming through even without you needing to basically actively work. You know, some people call it passive income, I guess. So the the, the four KPIs, let's start with lifestyle burn rate. Can you define what lifestyle burn rate is? I, before we before I answer that, I just want to kind of say the reason that I think measurements and we use the word KPIs, so key performance indicators. The reason I think it's really great, especially as a newer investor, to measure something is that I think the journey of building wealth is quite. Um, it's like watching paint dry. It's a bit dull, um, and nothing much happens very quickly. So it's it's different to business where you can sort of see things happening and there's lots of ways that you know that there's movement. But when it comes to wealth building, I think one of the best ways to kind of stay engaged is to measure a few things and, and then actually notice them changing over time. I think that's that's why it's it's exciting. Like otherwise you feel like you're, you're taking all this action and spinning your wheels and it can be disheartening sometimes and you can feel like you're not getting anywhere. So that's why one of the things that I have found really helpful for a lot of people, especially you know, whether they're 14 years old or they're 50 years old, is having these little uh, measurements that they can take at regular intervals, not too often, but that will let them know that they are moving forward. 
So it's not the same as a benchmark necessarily, which is kind of comparing to somebody else. It's like on your journey, are you making progress? And I actually think that's really important. Yeah. So if we talk about lifestyle burn rate, then yeah. um, how how do you measure lifestyle burn rate? Or what? Actually, sorry. Let me start first. Is so what is the definition of lifestyle burn rate? So lifestyle burn rate, all it means is it's a reference to of the money that I earn, how much am I spending on my lifestyle? So for example, if I was earning $100,000 and I spend $60,000 after tax, forget about tax, $100,000 after, after tax and I spend $60,000, then my lifestyle burn rate is 60%. And the reason it's a really valuable metric is it kind of shows you over time, are you being very mindful about how you spend your money? Because I think one of the mistakes that most people make is as they start to grow their income, they just kind of don't pay any attention to how much of it is going out the door. And we justify spending more money. We think that we've, you know, earned the right to drive a better car, have fancier holidays, you know, all the stuff. And so what happens is we, we kind of not cripple, but we create a handicap around our ability to convert income into those assets that we talk about. So would you say, um, best practice, let's call it that, or what you see actually genuine, like people who are genuinely wealthy generally are able to, whilst their earning capacity or their earning ability increases, they've been able to either maintain or at sometimes even, you know, reduce their lifestyle burn rate as a result because it creates more surplus and therefore that additional, you know, money or capital that they generate can then be used towards actually investing and building their wealth. Absolutely. So lifestyle burn rate is, uh, you know, and I should kind of pre-frame all of this. The, the people who I advocate for are self-made. So this is not someone who inherits a, a boatload of money at some point. This is people who are trying to create wealth from scratch. So if I uh, have a, a certain earnings when I enter the workforce, there's a pretty good probability that sometime over the next 10, 15, 20 years, it will, it will go up. It will double, triple, you know, who knows, like, could, you know, sky's the limit. But the more interesting thing is as my income goes up, what happens to the percentage of it that I spend? So if you are someone who's very mindful about spending their money, maybe we'd even use the word frugal, but just careful with your, your the way that you spend money and you're able to maintain the same dollar spend even when your income grows, then obviously what happens is your lifestyle burn rate starts to fall. So if you earn $100,000 today and you're spending 60000 that's 60%. But in 10 years time, if you're earning double that, let's say you're earning 200000 after tax, but you're still only spending $60,000, then obviously your lifestyle burn rate has halved. What's really interesting for, you know, tracking your own journey is actually to say, like, you know, how is that changing year on year? And, you know, I'm a big advocate of like, let's say, you know, you're going to be earning more money next year. What are you going to do about it? Like, are you actually going to consciously make decisions about how you're going to allocate your money to, you know, surplus versus your lifestyle? Or are you just going to kind of do it with the, with the benefit of hindsight? It's really hard to do it that way around. How would you suggest someone tracks this? I mean, I'm thinking in my head, you know, you kind of have to have this, you know, spreadsheet. Uh, you probably got to look through your bank statements and your credit card payments. You got to look at how much cash you've spent. And then obviously, you know how much you earn on a regular basis as well. Have, have you found it a good way to be able to do this on a regular basis? 
Look, I like to get into the weeds a little bit and I, I like to actually see, you know, I have maybe 10 broad categories of expenses and I like to see the difference between discretionary spending and my bills non or non-discretionary. One, once I kind of like, I might have five categories within discretionary, things like entertainment, travel, so forth. And then my non-discretionary is my bills like the really boring stuff. And so I want to kind of understand like, where is my money going? So that's one part of it. But at the simplest level, you're exactly right. You could take your bank statement. You could see how much, if I add up all the credits, that's the money coming in. How much money did I earn? And then if I add up all the debits, how much money went out? And that's it. That's your lifestyle burn rate. You know, you need to kind of make sure, like if you've taken money out for investing, that doesn't, you know, count as part of your burn lifestyle burn rate. So you take that out, but you can be as simple about it as you want. It's not a complex calculation that takes hours. You don't need to be really clever or good at maths or anything like that. You just need to understand it's like, what did I earn? What did I spend on my life? And how much was left over? Cool. Well, that might segue into actually consistent, predictable savings pattern, which is number two. So can you define for me what that means? And then why is that important for tracking your pathway to wealth? So one of the first questions I ask a lot of my clients when I first start working with them is, you know, what are you saving on a consistent basis? They'll come up with a number. And then on the other side of the equation, I say, okay, let's actually get into it. Show me what you earn tell me what it costs to run your household. And then the leftover number should match this number over here that you're telling me that you you save. And inevitably, there is a massive difference between those two numbers, what they think they're spending and what they're actually spending. And so one of the things I think that we have to recognize in ourselves is that as individuals, as humans, we're flawed and we have blind spots. And what I love about the exercise of sitting down to actually work out how much am I actually spending, the numbers don't lie. Like, you know, if you're looking at things in hindsight, if you try and tell me, Selena, I only spent $50,000 last year, and then we sit down and go through your bank statements and we see that actually you spent three times that amount, then we know that, you know, there's something that needs to happen there. So when I talk about consistent, predictable savings, all I'm doing is I'm showing people if you get a handle on how money flows when it comes into your world and you can actually, you know, as I keep saying, kind of plan ahead of time that you're going to take money out to kind of be the leftovers, if you like, and then you're just going to live on the rest. So I call that allocating rather than budgeting because I, I hate budgeting. I like to know that in general, it's going to cost me this amount of money to cover my bills. This gives me this amount of money to play with and do what I want with. And then that, then I know that I've got a certain amount that say I save regularly. That simple system has literally made me, you know, millions and millions and millions of dollars of wealth because I could set that aside in advance and then use that to grow assets. And so why I think it's really valuable to measure um, how much are you saving on a consistent basis? Because it's consistency that is the real driver of your ability to grow wealth. I know a lot of people, let's say people who get paid bonuses or get like a chunk of money from the tax office or something at some point in time, they go, well, that's my savings. But inconsistent savings that you may or may not necessarily bank on doesn't give you a capacity to control how you go about building your wealth. If you can flip the conversation into, I know that I can consistently save X dollars every week, that means that you know with precision when you are going to have enough of a chunk of money to do that next investment or to do that next deal. And that is a completely different quality of conversation to hoping that you end up 
you know, taking chunks of money off the table at different points in time. So I think obviously there's the, uh, what's that Peter Drucker quote, which is whatever doesn't get measured, doesn't get managed type situation, right? So I think for these first two lifestyle burn rate, you definitely need to measure it. And same thing with your predictable savings pattern, because only then do you know what you then can manage, which we'll get into a little bit later on as well. The third one is net worth. So again, can you define net worth for me? So net worth is uh, an accountant's term, if you like, to describe if you had to liquidate everything today, like sell everything, how much cash would you actually have in your hand? And so net worth is a reference to if you add up the value of everything you own, every asset, anything that you could sell for money and then subtract any debts, any money that you owe to anyone for anything, whatever's left over is described as your net worth. And so everybody understands in general that net worth is used to describe wealth, but a lot of people don't even bother measuring it um, until they think they've got something worth measuring. So um, I know a lot of real estate investors, they kind of loosely know what they have, but they never actually sit down and go like, today my net worth is this. And the thing about net worth is that it compounds, like we understand the principle of compounding. And so you might have a very small net worth today, but when you look at it, in two years, five years, 10 years, it could be many times what you have today. And so again, it, it boosts your confidence. It makes you feel great when you see that number moving. There are some metrics that accountants use to measure success and they don't move very much. And that's why I think it does amazing things for the psyche to see progress. When you see progress, you feel like sticking with it. It's when you don't see progress that you feel like giving up. So when you say it compounds based on your network, can you give like a real life example of how that actually works? So when I was younger and I was just starting to invest in real estate, my dream was, you know, I would love to get to a net worth of five mil. That was the number that I had in my mind. It felt so far away. This was back in the day when you could buy houses for under half a million dollars. And so the idea of having a net worth in real estate of five mil was like, oh my God, that's so far away. And then I just got busy and, you know, I, you know, I would put the balance sheet together every now and then and, you know, and then one day I got up and I went, holy shit. And I'd forgotten I'd set that goal. Actually, I should say that I'd forgotten I'd set that goal. And then I found a journal that I'd done and I went, oh my God, I have like sailed way past that. And I forgot to celebrate that. <laughs> but it was, it wasn't that I did anything magical. It was just that the, the value of those assets just starts to exponentially grow. And so like, even if I do nothing at this point, my net worth is just going to keep expanding because I've, I've done the hard yards around putting an asset base in place. So I've bought assets that will consist Consistently grow over time, whether or not I get up out of bed. And I mean, come on, that is ultimately, why would you invest if it didn't do that? So, but you forget. And so sometimes these reminders are good, like, because sometimes you go in and you check. So I use a tool now that kind of tracks my balance sheet in real time because it plugs into RP data and property real estate stuff. And I go in every now and then and I still go, oh, wow, like, you know, on paper, that's a phenomenal number. That's, you know, it's exciting. But my point, my point is, I think a lot of investors think it's not worth measuring until there's something like juicy and meaningful there. But I would say, again, even if you are 20 years old and you're just starting, it's really valuable to just go, this is where I am today to track your journey. And this is where I am in a year's time. This is where I am in two years time because though the number will just, if you're mindful about it, if, if your intention is to grow your wealth, 
it will grow if you do that, if you take that activity. So just to play devil's advocate, because I know some people are going to be really snarky and be like, well, what assets are these? And like, does all assets just predictably grow? Obviously, I think in your case, um, there's sort of a real bent towards, you know, um, real estate, because obviously real estate is one of those ones where, you know, like we've seen historically in Australia grown quite significantly over the last 10 or 20 years as well. So um, are you able to elaborate a little bit on assets specifically, just to give people a, li- a bit more of an understanding? It's like, because it's like saying, saying, well, assets, 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 but I don't actually know what these assets are and how this actually helps me grow. Like in its simplest language, an asset is a thing that you could sell for money. That's what. I, that's how I think of it. It's a thing. So you could have an asset that, say, for example, is a watch. You could go out and buy a really nice watch and you might, when you're 20 years old, you might list that in your balance sheet as an asset. The question is, in the future, is that, is that watch going to be worth more? So for me, I don't understand collecting watches. A lot of people love the idea of collecting watches. And some people have said to me, Selena, you should buy some watches because they're going to go up in value. But I don't know or understand that asset class, so I don't. So the thing to understand is asset is or is the language to describe a thing that you could sell for money. But the other thing to take into consideration is there's lots of asset classes. So part of your journey in life is to go, well, which asset classes, which types of assets do I like? And for me, like I tried playing with shares. I did futures. I did currency trading. I did all these different asset classes. And ultimately, I found that I had the most success with real estate. So that's become my asset that I prefer to focus on. But let's say, for example, like I know you've had a a huge um, love of indexed funds where you just stick your money in, you don't have to think, and you're just kind of, you're buying a pool or a little, you know, bundle of shares, which is going to go up with the, the share index. And so that would be an asset asset that you have on your balance sheet that maybe let's say today it's worth $100 and hopefully in 10 years time it's worth you know 200 or $250 and that's that's the game you're playing and so the idea of measuring assets it's simply what things if i listed them all out could i sell so you would include your car that is not necessarily an appreciating asset that might be worth less in 10 years but the point of what i'm saying is that you know an asset an asset could be intellectual property something that you build, a digital product. It could be all of that stuff. But for the purpose of wealth building, I just say, what is it that you've got that you could sell? Excellent. No, I appreciate it. All right. Let's talk about the last one, number four, which is working capital. What is working capital and why is it important? I started to talk about working capital in the last few years because I met and started working with a whole lot of investors that were patting themselves on the back that they had done really well financially. But when you actually looked behind the curtain, you saw that most of their net worth was actually tied up in their family home. One of the benefits of living in Australia is that if you threw a dart at the map of Australia 20 years ago and you bought something somewhere, chances are it's worth a lot of money right now because our real estate market has gone nuts and we we get that. But if your balance sheet or your net worth, which is your balance sheet is just a list of all your assets and and loans. Um, If your net worth, and I'm just pulling numbers, let's say your net worth is a million dollars and your asset base is, you know, mainly your house. Your house is worth 800,000 of that million dollars. It's very easy to kind of go, well, you know, based on the other three metrics that we've just created, that I'm doing really well. 
But the minute I say to you, what is your working capital? What I'm really asking you is of the capital of your net worth that you have, how much of that is actually working for you, growing in value and is actively being invested for the purpose of wealth building? Now, some people think of their own home as an asset that is working for them. I am just getting to that point with a lot of people where I'm really kind of trying to stretch them into some bigger goals. So I say your house that you live in, if all you're doing is living in it and you're not using any of that capital to work for you and it's just sitting there doing nothing, I call that a big fat lazy panda. So my argument is you should exclude it from your working capital. So working capital is a reference to assets after any loans that is working for you to help you grow your wealth, like you're actively investing in. So if you, if you were invested, if you had a million dollars net worth and your house is worth 800,000, so your working capital is only 200,000 and maybe that 200,000 is in some kind of managed fund, that is your working capital. It is working for you in an asset that's intended to grow over time. So, I mean, based on these four, um, how do they sort of work together? Right. Like I think if I think you've got like a dashboard of some kind that you sort of track and like how, you know, if you're if you're using this as someone who wants to track this, I guess the question is like, how how should you be using this now to you know measure if you're on track to be wealthy or not? I think the very act of measuring these things and really monitoring them will push you in the right direction. Because, you know, if you're getting feedback that your lifestyle burn rate, for example, is blowing out, you can do something about it. I think the unfortunate thing is I, I work with a lot of people who've clawed their way to some kind of reasonable net worth, but they're not where they want to be. They don't have any kind of financial independence. And so I think just the, the very act of measuring it. So I don't care if you just get a journal and you just on the back of a bit of paper, you know, once every year or a couple of years, you sit down and you look at this stuff. The activity is doing it regularly. How you record it is, I, I don't really care. I've created tools for, for my clients to kind of give them a sense of, and I'm happy to share that here, how to do it in a way that's just simple and clean and crisp and you can look at it and you can see that you're moving forward or not. What I think the average Joe needs to do is just sit down and start the exercise of where am I today? And then, you know, the next step from that is maybe setting out some plans and goals and, you know, how are you going to get to that next stage? But I think if you're just at least measuring those four things, you're going to separate yourself from what 99% of other people do. Well, to sort of be practical also, let's just say, for example, you are now tracking these four KPIs, right? And you sort of have a good indication. What do you think is sort of the next steps? Because um, I know you talk about, and I've got three points here, which is number one, to plan to get off the rental ladder. Number two is plan to invest. And number three then is to monitor borrowing capacity. Do you want to talk about that a little bit as to sort of next steps now that you sort of have your foundations and baselines and you're measuring everything accurately and you know where you're at? One of the reasons, and we've talked about this in the last couple of episodes uh, about why I am so passionate about getting off the rental ladder. Um, but the, the reason that I want to kind of really focus on today is as an investor or as someone who wants to move towards financial independence, part of that is control. Now, there's a lot of things that you can't control in your life, the, the economy, the environment, what the government will do, black swan events, all that stuff. You can't control that stuff. But if you can, own a piece of real estate that will shelter you no matter what, that gives you a very good sense of control for what otherwise would be a very expensive 
high ticket expense. So I'm a huge advocate of get off the rental ladder as fast as possible for a whole raft of emotional reasons. But from a really practical viewpoint, it is ultimately what will give you a very high degree of control when it comes to your finances. When you are on the rental ladder, you are beholden to a whole range of different factors. You are beholden to what happens economically, um, landlords, what happens with a whole bunch of things. And so I'm an advocate for control of your wealth. And so that's why I say that one of the first aspirations that you should kind of set when you are serious about building wealth is how could you get off the rental ladder if you needed to. So I'm not saying that you would necessarily buy a piece of real estate and move into it, but you would just have it in your back pocket as this is there if everything turns to custard and I really need to move into my own place, I have it. I have that control. You might be very ambitious and you know strategic and calculating and you might say, well, I want to live at home or I'm going to stay on the rental ladder because I see that by owning a piece of real estate that I rent to somebody else, I can ratchet my way up quicker. You know, There's all of that, but I'm just advocating that get off the rental ladder as fast as you can if you are seeking control in the future. And then obviously next steps without getting too far ahead of ourselves, plan to invest and also monitor borrowing capacity sort of much further down that investing journey as well. Do you want to touch on those two? Like I'm a huge advocate of just create a plan. It can be so basic. In fact, I'm a huge fan of the one page plan, but a plan is really saying, here's what I am committing to do in terms of actions. And here's what I'm going to attempt to achieve over the next whatever period of time. And so the reason I think a plan is really important is it kind of holds you to account on some of those metrics that we've just talked about. So say, for example, you have a goal that you want to buy your first piece of real estate, then the first goal that you might have is some kind of savings goal. So your plan to get there will be, I'm going to take these action steps um, I'm going to set up these bank accounts and set up the flow of money and I'm, this is how I'm going to do it. And that will get me to what I want as my first micro goal, if you like. So a plan is nothing more than summarizing, here are the steps I plan to take and here's how I'm going to do it and here's when I'm going to do it by like the whole smart goals thing, but it just kind of writing it down and you know holding yourself accountable to, to that. So it doesn't have to be this, you know, 50 page complex thing. It's a one page uh, of, you know, high level points. And I think everyone can do that. You know, I still do it now. Uh, I have a tendency to do things mentally first. Like what do I think all the different options are? But I write it down eventually because otherwise, especially as you kind of get into a relationship and you're running a household, life gets complex. And I think making sure that you're on the same page with the person you live with is really, really important if, if you're planning to combine forces and do things together. Perfect. All right. So I guess um, to summarize it all, there's obviously the four KPIs. And I think, uh, you know, it's been beaten to death now that we're saying we've got to actually make sure we measure and see where we're at currently and where we're tracking towards in order to understand if we're on track or not on track to being wealthy as well. Do you sort of have any closing thoughts about, you know, all of that? Um, do you have any sort of key takeaways that people should think about? I think the act of measuring is really important. And I think if you pair that with the the idea of a plan, that's when you start to really kind of amp up the results that you can get. I think measurement for the sake of measurement is okay, and you will have a certain degree of control. But if you don't kind of set some aspirations around what you would like to achieve and by when, it's kind of hollow. So progress is good, but progress towards a specific outcome is really, really important. And, you know, I, I think... Um, 
not enough people kind of think about those things. They, and they, the reason they don't think about them is they think it's too complicated. But, you know, as we've highlighted today, it's, it's really keep it simple. Um, if you can't summarize everything we've described in a single page, it means you're, you're overthinking it. Amazing. All right. Thanks for uh, jumping on and discussing. But I think um, for the four big takeaways, it's how people should go out and actually just start tracking this stuff. And it doesn't need to be overly complex. I think some people like to be spreadsheet masters, but others can actually have it on the back of a napkin as well, as long as they're keeping an eye on it and they're making sure that it's on track um, and they know what's happening with their spending, their lifestyles and their earnings, then they should be able to then inform future choices to building their wealth. Absolutely. Cool. Thanks, Lena. Thanks, Ken. That was fun. If you're feeling frustrated that despite doing everything right in the property investing playbook and you're no closer to financial freedom, then head on over to incosiwealth.com to learn more about how you can use alternative investments to catapult your investing income and blend strategies to shave decades off your timeline to financial freedom. See you on the next episode.